for my section, I'm really here to just kind of share with you and kind of, uh, in some ways, open up my own heart and the, the leadership of Icon here, uh, what we're thinking around this topic. Um, Icon is not the solution to this. Uh, Jesus alone is. And uh, we're not going to, uh, I'm not going to sell Icon tonight. I simply just want to share with you, here's what we feel about this. Here's the reason why we wanted to have an event like this. And to start it off, let me, let me, just, let me just say this. It's easy to be the one sleeping when you're not the one suffering. In the, in the gospel accounts, there's, there's this scene in which Jesus is just hours before his crucifixion, and he takes with him uh, three of his closest friends into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he tells his three friends, I, I, I want you to pray with me. And uh, it's visible that he's in pain, and there's something coming that he's actually incredibly worried about. And so he tells them, will you, will you pray with me? Jesus goes off and uh, he's praying and he's in anguish. And then he comes back and his friends are, are asleep. And uh, Jesus wakes them up and says, in, in, you know, in modern day language, what are you doing? You know, um, do you, can't you see that I, your, your friend and your teacher, am in suffering? And Jesus goes off to pray again and comes back. And it happens three times that these friends are asleep. And that's because it's easy to be the one sleeping when you are not the one who's going through suffering. And unfortunately, I think that that's an apt illustration of how many churches think in this category of spiritual trauma. And I, and I mean churches who have, uh, weren't even a part of the original incident. That they, they're not the ones who are suffering, they're not the ones who have gone through it, and so it's easier, unfortunately, to just be asleep to this entire category. Churches that, that weren't involved, that, that didn't inflict the pain, they just write off, in some ways, this category of, of pain and trauma as being overly sensitive, at worst, questioning the victim with questions of suspicion or minimizing their pain. And, and I just want to say to you, I'm genuinely sorry that if you've gone through something like this, I'm genuinely sorry that churches are just so quiet about this. Part, part of that might be because we're intimidated by it. Part of it might be that we don't really know that it's a, as big of a problem as it actually is. But regardless, I'm sorry as a pastor. Sometimes it's frustrating to exist in, in the same category, pastor, as those who have abused God's flock. To exist in the same category of those who have used and manipulated God's people for their own gain. But, but regardless, I am a pastor and I have to stand up here and, and say something. And what I want to say to you is, is I'm sorry. I'm sorry that churches have not been vocal about this. But here at Icon, we want to be vocal about it. And, and our, our philosophy of, of leadership in many ways centers around this verse in Jeremiah 3.15. There, God, God speaks through the prophet with words of encouragement to the exiled Israelites, and he says this. It's just a simple phrase. I will give you shepherds after my own heart. Which is significant. These, these exiled Israelites are in exile, not, not only because of their leadership, certainly because of their own sin, but in many ways, what, what led them into exile, into their current situation, was the fact that they had leadership that had punted on the Torah and had cozied itself up beside worldly power. And God here promises that as an act of grace, he will give these Israelites new leaders 
whose, whose leadership, intuition, and ambition is all driven by this one ethic, pursuing the heart of God for the sake of the people of God. And I just want to say that is our ambition as leaders here at Icon Church. We're going to fail on that, certainly. But that's our ambition. Spiritual trauma happens, like, like Beth said, when leaders use people as pawns in their own schemes for advancing power or prestige and worldly clout. People become just horses to be driven so that the carriage of, their own, of, of this abuser's clout or prestige can move forward rather than, than sheep to be, to be nourished and cared for, which is actually where that verse goes. And so with as much attention and investment as we can, we want our leadership to reflect the care of shepherds. That's the first thing. We want to be shepherds after God's own heart. But here's another thing. Something, something that haunts me as a leader in God's church is this. I don't, I don't think there's a system of leadership that is so godly, it becomes impervious to the mishandling of authority. There's not a system of authority, even in the most godly systems of leadership, they are open to the possibility of devolving and deforming into abusive leadership. That's just the truth. And so because of that, we here as a church in our leadership with sobriety and openness, seeing that this is a possibility, we don't want to have a top-down system that's closed off from critique. We don't, we don't want to have that because it doesn't matter how well-intentioned or godly the top is, it's still a person or a collection of people that's susceptible to sin. And so not only do we want to be a place where the leaders are set on God's heart, and not worldly ambition. We also want to be a place where everyone, everyone has a voice of critique and concern or, or warning that's, that's actually welcomed. Finally, in this category of spiritual trauma, how Icon wants to embody the gospel in this, one of the main ways of, uh, of, of spiritual trauma in Seattle that I've seen is in a lot of ways, people who have not experienced directly spiritual abuse, but rather people who, who came into a church and grew in their discipleship so quickly and, and so deeply, and then that leader leaves. It's a much more subtle form of at least spiritual anguish, <laughs> There are many people in Seattle that, that don't carry with them the, the painful memories of when spiritual leadership was openly and clearly abusive to them specifically, but I would still say it, there's such an air in this city of just abandonment wounds, of just feeling abandoned. No one in, nobody stays in Seattle. Spiritual leaders come in, maybe even help people, and then they're gone. But, I mean, let's, let's talk about the elephant in the room. I've had conversations where people have shared with me, and especially in preparation for this event, event, they would say, it's not that I felt and experienced the direct domineering leadership of Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll. It's actually that I felt so cared for initially <laughs> It's that I grew in my discipleship so quickly, and then now, he's not here. 
It's, it's not that they felt necessarily abused, but it's like they had a loss of a father. <laughs> this, this one source of a person who, who they saw as, as someone who, who God was speaking through, especially from the pulpit, and they were growing as Christians, and then all of a sudden, this father figure is gone. And obviously, that's not exclusive to the Mars Hill story in Seattle, but it's a major piece of it. Pastors come in. They exert a level of influence. They get some traction in people's spiritual lives and then move on to the next thing. Move on to the, maybe the next bigger church climbing the rung, climbing the ecclesiological ladder so that they can have a bigger church. And I just want to say to you, God can do whatever he wants, right? Let, let's, I, I will admit that. But I want you to know, if you go to Icon, if you, if you don't go to Icon, I'm so happy you're here. I would love to meet you. But if you go to Icon, I want you to hear me say it directly. God is going to have to drag me out of Seattle. It will be against my will. He might do it. He's stronger than me. I can't kick. I can only kick against him for so long. I've kicked against him. You know, we all have. But he's going to have to drag me out of Seattle. And so if Icon is your your home church, I just want you to know that I'm, I'm here to stay. My, my philosophy of ministry at Icon is I want to preach, pray, love, and stay. That's it. And so I hope that, I, I hope that with all of these and the net, with everything that best said, I, I hope that if you've experienced something like spiritual trauma or abuse in any way, or if you just have abandonment wounds from previous spiritual leaders, I hope that you'll at least find Icon as a safe place to be, a safe place to process, a safe place to have people lock arms with you and walk down this journey toward healing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are, you are, you take concern for your people so much that you, you care about those who, who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Of course you care. And you care so much that, that you demand its leadership be set on you and not on worldly ambitions and power, not on growing clout and prestige, but set on you. And I, I just want to pray that you, by your spirit, would help us here at ICON to embody that to, in any level of leadership for, the, for your heart, what you want for Icon, what you want for Seattle and those you want to save, that be the main thing. That be the hope. That be what drives us, God. Protect us from ourselves. We know that each and every one of us is so susceptible to our own sin, to our hearts that can deceive us would you protect us from ourselves? And would you, by your grace, make Icon, as a miracle of your grace, a place where people can actually heal? A place where that new humanity that you are creating in Jesus Christ is put on display more and more and more. We trust you for it. We look to you for it. And we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. 
Uh, well done, everyone in the room, because you guys sent in a lot of questions. So we're going to do our best uh, to get through as many of them as we can. Uh, there were definitely some distinctive themes uh, to the questions that came in, so we're going to kind of group some of them together around some similar themes around different questions. Uh, and again, we're just going to do our best to get through as many as we can and, and save a, a meaningful time of response for the end of our, our time together as well. So. Uh, as we go through, uh, we'll be inviting both <laughs> to answer, so this will be super fun. Here we go. Okay, so uh, we had a, a lot of questions come in around how do we care for others, which is awesome because obviously, as we've talked about, this is not an individual uh, thing to process through. And so uh, kind of grouping some questions together, I'm going to read a couple and then we'll, we'll defer to you guys. Um, first question, it has been exceedingly difficult. Uh, to form friendships inside the church. I found the most support and care outside the church. Uh, I have been stuffing anger, but I wonder if it's okay to be angry. And this question about practicing being curious, what are some practical ways we can graciously and compassionately ask people about re-engaging church when they've been traumatized? And then last, how can we encourage people uh, we know who have experienced trauma to be willing to not go through it alone? So thinking through, again, the theme of like, how do we, how do we care for others? How do we uh, encourage them to re-engage? How do we encourage them to not be willing to go through it alone? I want to, I think, start by uh, answering or trying to kind of give a little bit more about what does it look like to re-engage whenever there has been a lot of hurt and a lot of removal from, so both from the person who has been traumatized and those who also are trying to care for somebody who really needs others um, and shouldn't be alone. And here's what's really tough. Because of the nature of, of oppression, abandonment, grief, all of that, there, it, it's almost like this person, I'm trying to give you a little bit more insights, a person who's experienced those things, there's a, there's a wall up, there's a shield, and you will run into it, and it might hurt. <laughs> And, I, and it's not, you know, most people who've experienced trauma, they're not intentionally trying to be off-putting or to push people away, but they don't know how to be safe. And so I think that's where, whether it's in a church setting or outside the church setting, um, you know, I've got clients who are, are struggling to be in the church because obviously if the church was a place that was unsafe for them, um, I'm trying to be as gentle as I can to have conversations in coffee shops and to have, it's, it, it really is a lot like, um, making friends with someone who, I mean, you're just trying to make friends, right? And trying to come near to somebody. And that might not happen um, for starters in a small group setting or in a church service or in a, it may happen in coffee shops. It may happen um, at, on play dates. It may happen, but these are, these are really uniquely wonderful opportunities. And I think prob probably a lot of the reason why the church has been an unsafe place is because we feel afraid. We feel frustrated, nervous, afraid whenever somebody's like, oh, I don't think I trust the church. And our instinct is to be like, wait, what? No, like, come on, you can do it, get in here. You know, it's, it's like, th that's not helpful. And, 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 I don't, and I think probably we're, we're in our instinct to try to draw people in. What we're actually doing is maybe scaring them further away because we want to be inviting in a really winsome way. And that includes patience and slowness in a way that may not feel comfortable for us. It may feel pretty uncomfortable, the slowness with which we approach uh, people who are struggling this way. But if you think about it almost like, you know, Jesus uses, and all through scripture we see the analogy of a shepherd and sheep. 
And a sheep that has a broken leg or a sheep that's, you know, deeply wounded, they're going to feel afraid. When you touch that place that's wounded, they pull away, right? An animal's naturally going to do that. And they're going to have to, the the whole herd might have to go slower. Is is sheep in a herd? I don't know. Flock. I knew that was wrong when it came out of my mouth. We need some levity. It's okay. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, the whole flock may need to move a little slower because you've got this very valuable member who, who there's woundedness. And that may mean that we, we travel differently. And that's, that really is okay. It's the essence of what Jesus did, right? Like he, he left the 99. That was what he did. He did that for you to save you. And he does it for all of us continually. And so I think there's, there's a patience and a slowness that we are not prone to naturally in our humanness, right? Like we just, we're like, hurry up and do, obey God and do the right thing and move forward and come be in our community. And honestly, I think there's just, there's just a, we need to take some deep breaths and recognize that this process may be slower. So I think that for those of us who are in the church family, trying to welcome somebody in, um, the, you know, I can tell you that it doesn't work great to sort of preach at somebody about why they need to be back in the church if they've experienced hurt in the church or trauma. It's, um, it's a lot more asking questions and coming alongside than it is teaching and preaching. Um, if you've experienced church hurt and you're not ready to be part of the church, I think um, I hope that you're at least ready to have friends who are part of the church, <laughs> to have that link um, that there's there's look, and it's hard to find people who are safe. That's part of why what I want to say to you guys as the church is, I I hope and pray that you'll be safe people for people that need safety, because that is kind of step one to drawing people in. Um, And it may take a long time for you to seem like a safe person to somebody who's been traumatized. Um, You might feel like you're having to prove yourself over and over again, and that's not as maybe not is exactly what's happening, but it might feel like that to you, and that's okay. You recognize that this person has been hit with the candle over and over, and maybe they see you as somebody that might be holding a candle. It's hard for them to, might be hard for them to step into that with you. I don't know. Is that, you want to add? Uh, at the top, uh, the being curious, what are some practical ways we can graciously and compassionately ask people about re-engaging church when they've been traumatized? Uh, encouraging people who we know have been traumatized to not go through it alone, um, and then as part of the processing, look at that, wow. Uh, how do we find care and support within the church from healing? What she said. <laughs> um, <so laughs> that's how you're going to do this. Yeah, totally, that's all yeah. the job, Josh. <laughs> uh, no, I think there was one in there that you mentioned around uh, someone feeling uh, a sense of anger at the, them being able to find relationships easier outside of the church than they can inside the church. And, and I think that's an important one because I think Christians don't do friendship well. Um, Christians highlight two relationships, God and you husband and wife. And that's it. <laughs> and, and we don't almost have any category for what it looks like to have other Christian friendships that are just as necessary as some of those other relationships. You know, like one of the things I had to, um, to really come to realize 
specifically like in my marriage is that there's things that I can get from a, a very close friend that that my marriage isn't there for you know like my 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 wife I say this in when we do premarital counseling my wife is not meant to be my best friend sometimes she is you know <laughs> that's great but but I have other spaces other relationships that actually give me what a friendship is supposed to give me and so I'll just say that Christians don't know how to do friendship well because we we don't prioritize it like it needs to and then the other thing I would say is that in in that same category of friendship is that um of course, it's easier to, to find friendships outside of the church because there's such a large swath of ways you can connect with other human beings. But when you come into a church and you come into a community of faith, I think it's important for us to remember that um, relationship, like depth of relationship is what we're here for. And that doesn't always mean friendship. Um, that, that doesn't always mean that you find your, your closest and best friend within a church community. Um, what, what happens here, the reason we, we come here is for deep relationships in community that are forming us spiritually. Um, and so it's okay. I, 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 let me say this. It's okay if you're clo- like your best friend is not a Christian. <laughs> that's, that's perfectly fine because you're receiving something from that person that, that you need but you also have this large swath of community in the church that's giving you what it's supposed to give you, which is spiritual depth and formation. I want to say one more thing. This is, where, this is why I like having more than one person that like sparks something for me. Um, so I spend time with clients helping them to think about how they can coach the people around them because honestly, we just don't know what we don't know. So like you don't know who the trauma survivors are in your church family if they don't make that known. You just don't know. But, what, but what's happening is that there's this storm under the surface for people that's internal. And so even though I hate that trauma survivors have to sometimes coach or give information or help others, that is part of the process. Um, so the example that I would give would be like, if you, if you joined the basketball team and you had torn your ACL last year, you need to tell the coach that. Like if you don't tell the coach and if your teammates don't know that you had a previous injury, then they might, you might get pushed too hard, you might, not, you might not be able to rest well, you might not get the physical therapy that you need or the, you know, the, the people might not help you with that, continuing to strengthen that thing that was wounded. And so I'm not trying to say that it's the responsibility of the trauma survivor to make sure that they get, you know, whatever, but there is a level of helpfulness and what I like, I use like word, the word agency. It's like you are a grown-up human person who's allowed to say what you need. You are allowed and it's good for you to say, hey, just so you know, and, and it's hard because it's hard to find safe people, but even if you just share this much, if, if you were able to come to your pastor or to come to somebody on staff or to come to somebody who's your small group leader or somebody that you meet on the welcome team out there and just say, hey, just so you know, I'm coming in with some pretty tough things that I'm trying to heal and grow from. Thanks for being near to me, but I, I, I'm kind of having, it's going to take me a little bit. I hope that's okay. I, as a minister to church, 
that would be my dream come true for somebody to bring that honestly to me because what it does is it allows me to go oh good yes because if i if i didn't know that i might i might drive you too hard i might push too hard i might say something that's and i probably am going to say something that's hurtful or painful for you and i like the opportunity to say that like man when i say something if i say something that wounds you further or that hurts you or that you you're receiving it in a way that, ooh, that was not okay. I want to know that. And I so appreciate what you said. Like, we want to be approachable in that way. Um, even if it's so, even if it's very subjective, this is, this is painful to me. Maybe it doesn't hurt anybody else, but it is painful to me. It's good for me to know that um, so that we can walk together in community. It may not mean that I can do everything in such a way to, like, make sure that your journey is is perfectly safe, but the fact that you're willing to come and share that, um, even if it's just a little bit, it gives me insight as a minister and as a friend in the faith to come alongside in a way that's compassionate and careful. I think that's really important. It's a great segue. Uh, it's a lot of questions come in about uh, what to do when uh, you are experiencing kind of some of that spiritual trauma from a particular spiritual leader. So the question is, how do you heal from spiritual trauma when the person you would go to process is the one who caused the spiritual abuse, your pastor, your leader, your mentor? Well, first of all, that's really sad. It's really hard. And I think it's the nature of it, right? Like that's the, that is the hard, one of the hardest things about it is that the very person that you would go to for help and support and healing and hope is the person who was the least safe in your life. And so the question is then, how, where else can I find that? And, and I will say this, I mean, we have a deeply personal, on the ground, face-to-face -face God who loves us in every single moment and already knows what we're experiencing. And, I, and I'll just say, I mean, you may not be in a space where you can even pray or approach God. I get that, if that's where you are. But I will say that he, he wants that. He deeply desires with open arms to have you come towards him and pray those things. And what we would pray for you is that you will be able to um, have wide, eyes wide open to see even just the glimmer of a potential that somebody might be a safe person that you could find. And it doesn't have to necessarily be somebody in a place of authority. Um, but here's what I'll say. If you don't have anybody to process with, this is why you, you know, look on your insurance and see what professional counselors are in your area. It is literally the job of a professional counselor to help you think through what to do next in these scenarios. It's like, if you have a minefield in front of you, you need somebody who knows where the mines are to help you do, that's what professional counselors are supposed to do. And by the way, if you have a professional counselor and they're not doing that, fire them, go find someone else. You get to do that, you're allowed to do that. <laughs> so it's, just, it's really important. And that this is what we're trained to do is to help on that road, even to help you like think about who might be a safe person that you could try to approach. And what would you even say to that person? And how would you ask questions? And how much should you share? That's, that's a good thing to be able to process with somebody who does that for a living. That's not an advertisement. I don't have space in my schedule. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, this is a good thing to do. It's good for anybody. It's a long, it's a long commute to Dallas. So. I, I would say, um, obviously, like everything about that. Um, but I think that uh, there's a lot here. So let me gather my thoughts for a second. Um, 
Yeah, I, I think that when you, so I, I'm, I don't know if the question is that it's a specific person who is still your pastor or who's still your mentor or spiritual leader. If that's the case, then I think it's probably a runaway <laughs> uh, type of thing. Um, but I, I think that if you have, well, here's just one piece of advice. Um, go see a counselor, go see a therapist. And then as you, the, the hope is that you'll begin to slowly trend back into a healthy church. Um, and so that, that's going to take a long, long time in, in cases, but I think that that's the hope. And so I, w- I would suggest that if you have relationships with people who are at other churches and you have evidence and clear, in some ways, relational data that that church is a safe space, go there. Uh, that, that all comes after everything Beth said, you know, um, but I do think there, there comes a point where the hope of healing is a sense of restoration, not necessarily restoration back to under that specific pastor or mentor or leader, but the hope that you'll find someone who can still care for you because you, you will still need that at, at some point. Okay. We had a lot of questions come in around uh, some of this question of like, what if you're actually the abuser and whether that was conscious and intentional or not? Um, So one of the questions came in. In conversations like this, it feels so easy to demonize the abuser, assuming they are consciously inflicting harm to further their power or satisfy their sadistic desires. In my experience, the abuser is more often unaware of their harm and are genuinely trying to follow God and honor their interpretation of the Bible. What would you say to an abuser who is completely unaware of their harm and even defends their practice? As a leader, how do I know if that person is me? Well, thank you for that question. This is a whole topic by itself. So I was trying to think, she she gave this to me beforehand. I was like, "Hmm, I don't know how I'm going to answer this quickly. But I do want to give us a couple of categories for what we're talking about. And so I think that there are many well-meaning Christian people who were taught very bad things, theology, bad theology, wrong view of scripture, a misshapen understanding even of God. Um, and, And honestly, at a ground level, we all have a bit of that. If you've been in church for five minutes, right, you might have experience some bad theology, right? Like things that, that, that turn and misshape the gospel in a particular way. And that happens, and the, but, but let me just say that in that scenario, when it happens, when there's a misshapen view, and then there's this realization that, oh, that's actually not correct theology, or oh, actually that's a, that's a turning of scripture in the wrong direction, then the goal in that moment is to, is to say yes in humility to the truth. And people who do that are not abusers, right? So like if, if you came to me after this and you said, hey, you use such and such scripture and you used it in this particular way and it was not only not helpful, but it was harmful and I'd like to show you what that was and, and talk you through it and pray for you. And if I go, you don't know what you're talking about. I don't know you, do you have a degree? Show me your papers, you know, your license and I completely ignore and don't actually take that to at least consider the truth of it, that's a different thing than my saying, oh wow, thank you for sharing that with me. I wanna look at that and think about that. Cause I know, I mean, I've been teaching the Bible for many years. Some of the times I taught the Bible, I was, you know, in my teenage years, I'm sure I taught things that were wrong and unhelpful. And it was based out of something I had learned from someone else, right? I'm just passing along information. But when I realized that there's something wrong, I should be willing to receive that and hear it and repent 
if I've walked in sin. So if, if you sent in that question of like, oh my goodness, what if that's me? You're in exactly the right spot. <laughs> You're not, you are not functioning or acting abusively, right? You are actually considering the possibility that you might have used scripture improperly and it has harmed somebody. That is different than abuse. So I'm trying to create two categories. So abuse is intentional. Abuse is going to be intentional. Even if the abuser believes, so a lot of, uh, many, many abusers are self-deceived in that they have come to a place where they believe that their cause is righteous, but it doesn't start there. There's this process. If you back up in somebody's life, there's a process of, I don't need, I don't need help from anybody. I don't need anybody to tell me what's right. I don't have to listen to my leaders and authorities. I know what's best. So there's this growing sense of, I am the ultimate authority and you cannot touch me. That is different than, oh no, I taught wrong theology or I, I used the scripture in the wrong way and I'm so sorry. Does that make sense? So I'm trying to give you a little bit of a category because I think this happens every single time I talk about abuse. Someone, someone comes up and they're like, oh my gosh, I think I'm an abuser, please help me. And what I usually say is, well, you're probably not if that's your thinking. Um, but even if you've acted in an abusive way, you can repair, right? Like I would, I would say that I've acted in an abusive way, not over a long period of time with a pattern, but in instances I've acted abusively towards someone. And the goal, of, the beauty of the Christian life, right, is humbleness, confession, repentance, moving forward and, and walking by faith. So that is what we're meant to do. And if you didn't have the understanding before today, for example, that maybe using 1 Corinthians 7 could be really harmful to somebody, um, then now you know, and now you can go and seek to repair. Does that make sense? And that's a different thing than, oh, no, no, don't question me. I know exactly what I'm doing, and I'm untouchable in that way. And that takes time to get there. Whenever we work with couples um, in, our in our church who are in abusive marriages, um, this, is, this was actually helpful for our elder body. We had a guy come and talk with our elders about abuse, and he asked our elders, what would it take for you to get to a place where you feel totally fine that your wife is a crumbled mess and she's afraid of you? For, what would it, what, where, how would you have to be as a person to be like, whatever? And our elders were like, oh gosh. <laughs> There's, that, would, that would really take a process in my head of having to get me to a place of hardening to the point where I'm not affected by the fact that somebody is really hurting and I've caused that harm. And so it is a process that, that takes time. Um, and so, so I, don't, I don't know if that fully answers the question. I was, I'm trying to condense it. But I do, what I will say finally, and I think I've already said it, but I wanna reiterate. If you think you may have acted abusively and you want to seek to repair that, that's beautiful. And there are ways to do that by God's grace. And I would highly recommend that you seek out a counselor or a pastor to talk that through um, with, to just kind of gain wisdom of how can I go about trying to create repair with this person in a way that's humble um, and, you know, just repentant. And uh, I think that's really important. I, I don't know. I'm, uh, that's such a that's huge a question. question. <laughs> I, I mean, I just think that's Matthew 18, you know, when, when Jesus talks about this is we're talking about sin here and when jesus says uh, when someone has sinned against you and you go to that brother or sister and say hey here's what happened like here's 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 what you've done and that person repents 
then it's, he says that you've gained a brother, you know, the, the restoration and the repair. But if he doesn't, then you go with two or three witnesses. And then obviously it's a progression all the way down to, to breaking fellowship. Um, and so I, I think that that's just a, a uh, Matthew 18, what Jesus lays out, that, that you want, there's a possibility of repair, you know, anytime there's repentance. And if, it's, if there is repentance, it means that you're probably not an abuser and the relationship is not tarnished. Um, I, I'm encouraged all the time to remember that uh, with my kids, you know, like when I get angry, the biggest, my wife tells me this all the time because she's working on counseling, is that repair is the biggest thing. You know, like the ability, a child's going to remember, whether you got mad or whatever, like a child's going to remember the ways in which you repented to them and the ways in which you repaired. And so for me, when I get upset or I get impatient and maybe I raise my voice, anybody else raise your voice with their kids? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Does that make me verbally abusive? No, because then I, I, I intentionally come back and try to say, Margo, listen, this was daddy's fault. This was my fault. This is what I did. This was not your fault. Um, and I, I think it's, it's similar to that, that if you repent, then you're, I think you can have some confidence in, in that. But if not, if the person does, if you're going to someone and they do not repent, then I, I think you do follow that Ma- Matthew 18 framework of bring more people around. If they can't be convinced, Bring more witnesses, like like Jesus says, and then eventually, I think it gets to a point where you break fellowship and say, "Okay." Mm. And abuse is about power. It's all about power. So if you think about it, it's like if someone needs to stay in a position of power, then they need to have somebody to have power over, and they have to continue to push down on that with an oppressive force. So there's a pattern that will usually emerge where there's, I have to be in control, I have to be on top, which means you have to be under. And that's, that's a very different thing than, um, you know, I I'm, I'm learned this scripture in a certain way, or I learned this doctrine in a certain way, and I'm just passing it along without thinking deeply about, this. why we need to think deeply about our faith, right? And not just pass along what we've learned from our, from our former church leaders or whatever, right? Um, if I do that, then it's important that I, when I know that that's what I've done, I'm turning the corner. That is different than I'm trying to seek to have power over someone else with my words and with scripture. You're right. Uh, there are like 12 million more amazing questions. We're going to do one more. <laughs> 12 uh, million. <laughs> okay, that's a bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> there are a lot of great questions. Uh, we're going to do one more, and then I was chatting with Beth. We, we do want to kind of think through ways that we can still continue to answer some of these. So we'll be sending a recap email after this event, and, and we'll get you some of that information. But um, kind of one last question. Um, any advice for those who have experienced distancing or a negative rejecting reaction when opening up about past trauma? Oh, that's so sad. So I think the question is related to like, I, I shared and it went horribly wrong. Well, that's happened to me a few times. I think it's probably, I hope this is not discouraging. I think it's probably happened to every survivor that I've counseled because there's, everything feels risky when you've, ex- when you've got a pretty deep wound, right? Like, um, and so... <clears throat> If that has been the case for you, if you've experienced that kind of wounding from someone, whether they meant well or not, it happened, right? It's what you experienced. Pain, um, somebody reacting poorly, somebody, you know, for me it was, it was everything from, you know, you, you should have known better, 
the abuse wouldn't have happened if you'd done X, Y, and Z. Had that happen, I've had people say things like, well, you know, you, you, the reason that you're not getting better is because you're not praying more, you're not reading the Bible more, you're not, you know, like people, we don't know what to say, and then we say stupid things. So even well-meaning people, we don't know what to say, we say something stupid. So my advice for you, if you're trying to not say something stupid, is to just don't say anything at all. This is just, oh my goodness, that's so difficult. I'm so, I'm so sorry for that pain for you. I'm sad with you about that. That's enough, you know? Um, and I think what happens, I think the greatest pain comes when someone's trying to fix you or like change you or make you think differently about something you've been thinking about over and over, day after day after day, week after week, month, year after year. And then someone's like, oh, let me tell you this thing that'll make it all better. Well, that's devaluing and depersonalizing for us in our experience. And so um, if that has been your story, you're not alone. It's a very common story. Um, and, and again, I think the, this is where it's like, my, I, I literally have clients would be like, I'm so glad I pay you money to keep my story safe. <laughs> like this is, I, I literally, this is what my money goes for, is for you to hold it and keep it sacred until I'm ready to share it with somebody else. Um, and so that's, I think that's important and helpful that you, to have somebody that's trained to know how to listen to your story. Um, and then again, I think some of it, if, when you're ready to take the risk again, which may take a while, but I'm praying for you that the Lord will give you courage to just say a little bit, to just say a little bit. And then when you're ready to say a little bit, sometimes, and this is good marriage advice too, like we, our marriage counselor tells us this all the time, you should give your spouse or whoever you're gonna talk to some fair warning that what you're going to say might be tough so that they're prepared to hear what you have, you know, like I'm not, gonna, I'm not about to tell you, hey, we're out of milk. I'm about to say something a lot more difficult than that. And are you ready, you have capacity to hear me because I want to share something important. And even that level of readiness can alert somebody, oh, okay, I need to be prepared to, and, and even to even be able to say something like, and I'm, I'm not actually, I hope that what I can do is just share a little bit of what I'm experiencing and have you just be with me in it. Because I don't know what to do and I don't think you will know what to do for me and I want to just relieve that pressure from you. <laughs> like, it's okay. I don't need you to give me an answer. I just want you to be with me. And that's, that's really helpful for us to be able to do as survivors um, in order to be able to be with people. And I've been really surprised, pleasantly surprised, when I've given somebody that kind of warning or notice. They're, oh, they actually feel relieved. <laughs> like, oh, I don't have to like try to be smart right now. I can just be your friend. And not that friends aren't smart, but you know, like I can just, I can just be with you and not have to like try to come up with an answer or a solution for you. So I think that's really important. See why we brought in a licensed therapist and counselor and everything and not just some dummy pastor like me. I don't have anything to add. I don't have anything to add. (laughs) Great. Let's transition to a time of response. (laughs) 